We'll wait for Peggy to get to her seat, and then we'll start. (laughs) Me neither. Me neither. Well, I'm thankful for your presence this morning, and I'm gratified because if you knew that Hiram is teaching Revelation in the NPR, I figured I'd be talking to an empty class. If I I wasn't here, I'd be over there. So I'm not saying you all ought to go, but I'm thankful that you're here. See you later. Oh, is it full? Well, you knew it would be. I mean, you know, come on. Revelation. Our study for this 13 weeks, and really with everything, it's probably going to be about 10 weeks because we've got stuff that's going on that will interrupt, that will take precedent. We'll have a guest speaker possibly at some point. Um, I don't think it's going to be gospel meeting time quite yet, but it's going to be close. So we've got 13 weeks, and we're going to, we're going to talk in those 13 weeks as you're getting your handout now. We're talk, going to talk in those 13 weeks about the book of, of, uh, <laughs> book of Revelation. Now I've got to go to Hiram's class for that. We're going to talk about the book of Exodus. Why in the world do we need to talk about the book of Exodus? I mean, come on. That's an Old Testament book. talks about a bunch of people that are slaves. They come out of the slavery. They wander around. They get some laws. They don't abide by most of the laws, if any of them, and, they, and, and they're just... Why, why do we need to study the book of Revelation? What's, what's the purpose What's the purpose? Okay, so they're an example for us. As a Christian, do you see any parallels in the book of Revelation? In the, I'm going to say, keep saying Revelation until I, he lets me teach that class. Do you see any parallels in the Christian life, in your Christian walk? Do you see any parallels to the book of Exodus? Yes, ma'am. Okay, okay. And we're going to draw on that a lot. We're going to draw on that a lot. What else? Now, you should be able to play off of that statement and say something else about the book of Exodus and the Christian walk. What else about that? Okay. So let's step back beyond that. You're going you're gonna to fall and commit sin. People in the book of Exodus did that, did they not? Okay. Okay. How many commandments? Okay. How many plagues? How many times did the people grumble? Get, take a wild guess. Ten. Ten. So there's a lot of grumbling going on. Now, before we take it and go into the book of Exodus, let me level set everyone to what's going on because I'm going to make some statements that while they're not profound, you all know them already. You're extremely familiar with them. You may not have thought of them. But they're extremely fundamental to understanding not only the book of Exodus, but understanding your life as a Christian. Here we go. Genesis 1.1. We'll go all the way back to the beginning. What does it say in Genesis 1.1? Nobody should even have to look that up. God created the heavens and the earth. And what was on the face of the deep? What was on the face of the deep? Darkness was on the face of the deep. If you read that verse, if you read Genesis 1 and verse 2, it says the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. That, for me, family, is the definition of chaos. Unorganized, 
darkness. Now, what's the third verse say? And God said, in the original language it says, and God said, light be, and light was. And that's the first and the most fundamental lesson that you can learn about God that covers every book in the Bible. It covers every interaction between God and man. God will always bring order out of chaos. God will always bring order out of chaos. At the end of chapter 1 of Genesis, God had finished all his creative duties and he rested on the seventh day. And he looked at everything that he had created and behold it was, it wasn't just good, friends. It was very good. God will always bring order out of chaos. Chapter 3. What happens? Chaos re-enters the world. And it is a chaos that is extremely personal because it is chaos of the heart. And we know chaos of the heart is what? Sin. Sin is chaos. Sin is without God. Sin is darkness. And God will always bring order out of chaos. And so we go through the rest of the book of Genesis. Story after story. Reveals to us that God always brings order out of chaos. And so as we begin to read and to study the book of Exodus, there's value in it because again and again, we see God bringing order out of chaos. But as multiple people in the class have already brought forth, there are lessons for us to glean from the book of Exodus, and that's what this study is going to be about. Is there a New Testament corollary, comparison-wise, to the book of Exodus? If you've been reading your Lehman Learner, you know there is. What's the book in the New Testament that's the corollary or the comparative to the book of Exodus? Hebrews. Jesus is better than who? Moses. One is the type, one is the antitype. So if we look at the flood, God saw that chaos in the world was out of control, and he regretted that he had even made man. And so what we see in that tiny boat with those animals and those eight folks is a microcosm of the world. Order being brought out of chaos. And so the examples are innumerable. And so as we begin to look at the book of Exodus, we note that chapters 1 through 19 are historical in nature. And chapters 20 through 40 are legislative. And so that should give you some idea of what we're going to talk about in the class. We're going to talk about the historical portion of the book of Exodus, and we're going to spend some time in the legislative portion. Because you will note that people like the Pharisees and the Sadducees don't exist in the Old Testament. 
Suddenly, they're a factor in the New Testament because that happened in the intertestament period. They were not around. They were making laws where God had not made laws, and they were forcing those on the people. So what we're going to do is we're going to step back and look at those laws and what laws he set down for the people and how the people reacted to those laws. And we know how the story goes because we've read other books following Exodus. We know that the people wandered away from the law. Chaos ensued. And God brought order out of chaos. He brought the judges. When they asked for a king so that we can be like everybody else, God granted them that wish, gave them a king. Chaos ensued. And God was forced to bring order out of that chaos. And so as we begin to look at the book of Exodus, we will note where we can those New Testament comparatives to the book of Hebrews, talking about Moses, talking about Jesus, talking about his coming, talking about all of the things that are a part of this book. Can you see the plan of salvation in the book of Exodus? Can you see the plan of salvation in the book of Exodus? If you can, that gives the book of Exodus value because it was in the mind of God before before creation even occurred. The chaos that exists in the world today outside of these doors and the chaos that exists within each one of us because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So there is some sort of chaos that exists in your heart today. I've heard it said that at every point in a person's life, when you have to make a decision, the devil stands in the crossroads. And he wants you to make a decision that's the wrong decision. He wants to create chaos in your life. That's his job. His job is to create chaos. And don't be, don't be misled. He does not love you. He does not care for you. He simply wants to accomplish one thing, and that is to separate you from God. If he can separate you from God, he wins. He does not care about you. He does not love you. And so the chaos that exists within each of our hearts that sin that doth so easily beset us, the Hebrew writer talks about, is taken away, is done away with by the love of God. If you think about the three greatest themes in the Bible, and I've talked about this in classes that I've taught over the many, many years that I've been here, what is the greatest theme in the Bible? The number one thing mentioned more than any other thing in the Bible. What is the number one thing? The love of God. You can barely turn a page in Holy Writ without reading about the love of God. What's the second most prevalent theme in the Bible? The sinfulness of man. Genesis 3. Sin enters into the world. And it goes right on through to the end of of the Bible. The love of God, the sinfulness of man. Now the third is is 
brings the first two together. And what is that? The death of Christ. It is as if Christ hangs on the cross for you and for me. And God reaches down and grabs his hand. And he reaches down and grabs man's hand. The love of God. The sinfulness of man. The death of Christ. Three most prominent themes in the book. And in his death, he brings order out of chaos. So I ask again, can you see the plan of salvation in the book of Exodus? Someone mentioned the tyranny of sin. The Egyptians were brought out from under the tyranny of sin, or the tyranny of Pharaoh in this case. What are we brought out of when we accept Christ and we decide to follow him? We follow him out of the slavery, the the tragedy of sin. We follow him out. We exodus by becoming new creatures. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 10? He talks about the fact that Moses and the children of Israel were baptized under the water. Well, there's the redemptive plan in action. Now, they weren't baptized for the forgiveness of sin. There's not, there's not, there are not profound corollaries here, but corollaries nonetheless. So we're baptized. We arise a new individual. We put off the old man. We put on the new. But what happens after that? We go back out into the world. Do we not? You watch someone be baptized, and they're not immediately caught up. They have to go back out into the world. They have to live in the world. They have to live in the wilderness of sin. And what do, the, what do people often do when they're in the wilderness of sin? Even though they're Christians, what do they do? They grumble, and they complain, and they sin. And nothing has changed since. It was their walk, and it's our walk. But at every turn, when chaos ensues within the children of Israel while they're wandering those 40 years, God provides order. When, he's, when they're hungry, he sent them He sent them manna from heaven. But it wasn't good enough. God gives us gifts. Pressed down, heaped up, pressed down, running over. And what do we want? We want more. We don't like what God gives us. But God always brings order out of chaos. And that is the theme that, that transects the whole Bible. 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, My God is not the God of what? Confusion. He's not the God of tumult. He's not the God of chaos. He's the God of peace. And when you're a Christian and you have chaos in your heart and you have sin in your life, God brings peace if you will but do what he asks. He'll bring peace. So the children of Israel, a synopsis of the book, they escape the tyranny of sin or the tyranny of Pharaoh. They wander They cross the Red Sea. 
they come to the land that was they come to the land and and they grumble and they complain and God says I'm going to give you some laws that you're going to live by. And while he's giving those laws, what are they doing? Chaos. What Christian do you know that has ever said, you know, I think it would be just, just be better if I went back into the world. Wasn't that what the children of Israel said? Why have you brought us out here in the desert to die? We would be better off if we went back to Pharaoh. Would you? Would you be better off? The Bible speaks about someone who's been converted and it uses some of the most colorful language, I think, in all of, all of Scripture. They've been converted, but they've gone back to the world. It would have been better if they had not known the truth. It's like the saying, a dog what? A re- dog returns to his own vomit. You ever seen a dog throw up and eat its own vomit? It's not one of the more pleasant sights I've ever seen. Or a pig returned to the wallowing in the mud. Sin is a, is a terrible thing. And it affects all of us every day. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But in the chaos that life creates for you and in you, God brings order and God brings peace. If you will but do what he asks. So the class, as you can see from the syllabus... And if you've got, not gotten a, a copy of the syllabus, just raise your hand. Somebody can get a copy to you if you've not got one. A couple of people. Do we have any leftovers? Okay. Hold on just a second. We'll get, some, we'll get some more copies. So the word exodus means departure. It's fairly straightforward. The people are departing out from under Pharaoh. But we need to spend a little time talking about how they got there in the first place. How many people, does the Bible say in Exodus 1, went into Egypt originally? Seventy. Now on the backside, when they come out, what are the estimates of the number of people that went out? 600,000 or six, more than that, 600,000 men. So we're not counting any women, we're not counting children, we're not counting the old folks probably, we're just talking about, because in numbers, God asks them to number the people of all the people who are able to go to war, 600,000. Conservative estimates from scholars, and it depends on who you read, who you believe. I'm going to follow a particular line in this class because I believe it to be a, a better line than some of the others that I've read, and I've studied some of the wildest ones, let me tell you. Estimates of the people who left, when they left Pharaoh, two to three million people. Now, you try to manage... You try to manage two million people. What's that the population of? What city has two million people? I don't think there's anything anything in Kentucky that has two million. Does Lexington or Louisville, do they have two million people? I don't know. That's a whole lot of folks. Plus what? What have they got with them? What are they carrying along with them when they leave? What are they taking with them? Livestock. Livestock. Wagons. Stuff. stuff. They got a lot of stuff. 
They got a lot of stuff that they that were given to them by the Egyptian people. Where do you think all the gold? Where do you think all the all the all the precious stones and everything came from? The Egyptians gave it to them to, to get them out of there. So some of the things we're going to cover in the class, how we got here, how we got to the Exodus, why God chose the ten plagues that He chose. You ever thought about that? Why is it? Why did God choose? the plagues that he chose to visit upon the people of Egypt and not on the children of Israel. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about where they went. We'll give you a rough idea of where the wandering before the crossing of the Red Sea occurred. And again, multiple scholars, multiple ideas, multiple reasons some of them really off the wall. We're probably not going to talk about them too much. But as much as you want to read and as many stories and as many scholars as are out there that are considered, quote-unquote, Bible scholars, everybody's got a different idea. We're going to talk about the path that they took. We're going to talk about them crossing the Red Sea, the implications of that to not only, <clears throat> to not only the children of Israel, <clears throat> To not only children of Israel, but also for us today. All along the way, as we study the book of Exodus, we're going to talk about implications from the book of Hebrews for the Christian today. All those things. Then we're going to talk about the mountain. Where is the mountain? What is the mountain? What do we know about the mountain? Now, there is a mountain in the Sinai Peninsula that is called Mount Sinai. That is an artifact of, uh, what was her name, Queen? Constantine's mother. I can't remember her now. I want to say it was was Noreen or Nora. I can't remember what it was. Probably not even that. She visited that area on her tour of what she called the Holy Land. And we know there's no such thing as the Holy Land. The Bible lands, yes. Not the Holy Land. No ground there is ho- no more, any more holy than, than it. That's a, that's a premillennial concept. When she visited there, they told her this was Mount Sinai. This is, the Mount of, this is the Mount of Moses. And she built a shrine there to St. Catherine. And that has for many, many years been where the children of Israel gathered at the foot of that mountain. But that doesn't follow the Bible. That doesn't follow the Bible. And so what we're going to do is we're going to to trace the children's wandering till they get to the mountain of God. When Moses killed the Egyptian and was forced to flee from the face of Pharaoh, where did he go? Where did he go? Where did he go? The land of... Midian, that's correct. The home of the Midianites. Now here's your next, here's your next Bible stumper. Who was Midian the child of? See, we're not, we're not good Old Testament scholars. We don't know our New Testament well enough to be able to say these things. And I don't, I don't, I don't mean I can name all the 12 tribes because I can't do it. I could get close. I could probably give you nine or ten of them. 
But this is like the dwarf, this is like a, the, the, of the seven dwarfs, the one we always forget. Because he was, after all, bashful. Right? Midian was the son of Abraham after Sarah died and his wife Keturah. So Moses fled to the land of Midian. We're going to see where the land of Midian is. The land of Midian's in Saudi Arabia. And there he tended the flocks, and there he dwelt beneath the mountain of God. So the mountain of God can't be on the Sinai Peninsula. It has to be somewhere in Arabia. Because when the children of Israel come back, it talks about his father being a priest of Midian that comes out to him. So we'll talk about that. Then we're going to talk about the Ten Commandments. We're going to spend probably a class or two talking about the Ten Commandments and the corollaries for the Christian today. What Jesus said about the Ten Commandments. One of the most interesting ones of the ten, and there there are none that are more important than, than the other, but one of the more interesting ones is thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not steal. When we talk about thou shalt not steal, what are we talking about? What are we talking about? Just stealing money? Taking money from somebody? What are we talking about? How can you steal? How can you steal? Take something that belongs to someone else. Fornication is stealing. You steal something that does not belong to you that in the future might belong to someone else. I'm sorry? Murder can be, but thou shalt not kill, thou shalt do no murder. But yeah, you're stealing, some, you're stealing someone's life, so that is true. It has, yeah, it's got its own place. So what else can you steal? You can steal time. Time from who? Steal time from God, most certainly. Steal time from your employer. You work a 40-hour week. Do you really? Are you stealing from your employer? You're stealing. So we're not just talking about stealing with regard to money. There's, it's, it's very multi-layered. And God is, very, God is very precise in what he says. God is very precise in what he wants you to do. Owe no man anything. Do what? A lie steals the truth. That's very true. So Exodus is a story of deliverance for the children of Israel and deliverance from us in a greater context, in a more relevant context, deliverance for us from sin, deliverance for us from tyranny. It's a lesson about obedience. And obedience is not a dirty word. Obedience is a is a God-founded principle. It's not an ugly thing to be obedient to God. It's what he wants. It's what he desires. If you want to be acceptable to him, you must be obedient. It's a book about mercy, and it's certainly a book about the power of God. Imagine, if you will, a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire, protecting the children of Israel from the Egyptians as they come down through the, the mouth of the gorges or what's called pi Haroth. We read about that in Exodus. That's where the people crossed on dry land, a power of God. You read some 
non-Christian, I'll call them scholars, for a want of a better word, atheistic scholars, who totally discount the book of Moses, totally discount the children of Israel, tell you that you can find this nowhere in the annals of Egyptian history. Well, I've got news for them. There are stories in the annals of the Egyptian pharaohs of a people. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about the, the rise of the Hyksos, Hebrew kings who were overthrown. And there arose then a king who knew not Joseph. We're talking about hundreds of years. People forget. People don't remember the past. They're condemned to repeat it. They don't learn from it. So 70 people came in in Genesis, and it's repeated again in the first chapter of the book of Exodus. Two million left. Conservative estimate, two million. It's the story of their lives. It's the story of the institution of the Passover. It's the story of their departure and their wanderings. It covers from the birth of Moses to the erection of the tabernacle in Sinai. Yes, sir. Right. Yeah, there were more than there were more than seventy. But here again, yeah, we're gonna. We're, I mean, you know, seventy-seven, probably seventy-seven. That's okay. That's okay. Well, you're gonna read. You're gonna read some scholars that are gonna argue very vociferously for seventy-seven people, and they will not move off of that number. Just as there are a number of scholars who will not move off of seventy. And so, okay, seventy, seventy-seven. You know, two, three million. You know, we're not going to quibble on the numbers. A lot more came out than a lot than went in. And so your, your, point, your point is well taken. Your point is well taken. At every point along the way in the book of Exodus, there's going to be controversy among modern scholars. I, I just, I'll just tell you that right now. You go out of here today and you'll go home and you'll go read about some folks that have done some stuff, and I'm not going to mention any names. You've done, got some folks that have done some stuff, and they say, well, this just turns this whole thing upside down because here this is. Well, that, that doesn't mean doodly, because it does not correlate with what the Bible says. And what we're going to do is we're going to walk through the Exodus through the eyes of the people in that time and what they saw and what, what Moses recorded. And so that's going to be the genesis. So if you can't correlate what some scholar says with what the Bible says, you've got to make a decision. You're at a, you're at a, path, you're at a crossroads, and the devil's standing in the crossroads and you're going to have to make a decision. The Bible is inerrant. The Bible does not contain any errors. The Bible is not wrong on anything. And so whenever there is a conflict between science and the Bible, history and the Bible, you are well to go with the Bible in every instance. Ten Commandments. We're going to spend some time again talking about those. Commandment 1 through 4, duty to God. Commandment 5, duty to the home. And finally, 6 through 10, your duty to man, your duty to your fellow man. Did you realize, and you can go home and look at this today, you can go home and Google this, there are some denominations that have a different Ten Commandments than the ones that are in the Bible. Did you know that? You need to, you need to, ask, you need to ask our Catholic brethren that. Why? I don't know. They leave out a whole commandment. And they move a couple commandments up 
in the order, in the batting order, so that they have ten. But if you read them, you'll never find that commandment. Guess what it's the commandment about? Creating graven images and worshiping them. They don't have that commandment in their commandments. Thou shalt not make any graven images. What do you see in those places of worship? Graven images. You can go home and look it up. If I'm lying, I'm dying. Ten Commandments. Moses, the man, he brought the people out. When he fled to Midian, he was how old? Forty. Uh, Forty. When he came back to Egypt, after he kind of tried to wiggle out of getting to have to do the job, he gave, every, he gave God every excuse in the book, as we do sometimes when we don't want to do something. My way is the best way. But it's not ever the best way. God's way is always the best way. But he, he, I didn't stop him from arguing with him. He threw some pretty heavy stuff out there. Was Moses a stutterer? Seems to be some indication that he was. Who was his older brother? Older by how many years? Three. Who was his sister? Miriam. How much older was she than Moses when he was born? 12. She was the one that watched the queen consort come down. A lot of scholars will tell you that's Hatshepsut. Don't know if that's true or not. The times kind of match up. Now, here's the one you can go home and research today. Get on the Google and type in, who was the Pharaoh of the Exodus? And let me tell you, you will get some answers. Because man's timeline is not God's timeline. Because, you know, there's no more B.C. and A.D. They've done away with that, because that has to do with God. And we can't have any of that in our schools. We can't have any of that in our science. So now we've got B.C.E. or something else that's been thrown out there. And so those timelines don't line up. So you get a variety of people. Now, if someone were to raise their hand and say, who do you think was the Pharaoh of the Exodus? I'll tell you. In time. I'll tell you in time. Moses and his excuses. Pretty typical human. Pretty typical human. God says to do one thing and you say, I'd really rather do it my way. Can't I just say the sinner's prayer? I mean, the guy on television said it would be all right. If I just said the sinner's prayer, can I do it my way? Can I do it his way? Not if you want to be acceptable to God. People like that are the ones that generate chaos, if you want my personal opinion. They generate chaos. They generate confusion. They they generate tumult. I wish you hadn't led me there. I wish you hadn't led me there. Is our country in chaos today? What would you say? Is there anybody in the room that really believes our country is not in chaos today? What's the only thing that will bring order out of chaos? God. Oh, no. We've put God so far away. My wife wonders out loud sometimes why we're even allowed to still exist. These almost seem like pre-Noah times. 
Those people were. Those people in Noah's time. Go back and read the, 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 the description of the people in Noah's time. Scary. They're just like us. Sacrificing children to Moloch. Moses was 40 when he went to Midian, fleeing Pharaoh. He came back to Egypt. He was how old? 80. So you could split his life up into 40, 40, and 40, and then a little bit longer. But 40 years in Midian at first, or 40 years in Egypt at first, 40 years in Midian. So when he comes back, he's 80 years old. God brings order out of chaos. In Genesis 22:18, there's the seed promise. And God is a God of his word. If he says he's going to do it, you can take it to the bank. He's going to do it. If God says, and that's really the nice thing, that the, it's the thing I love most about the Bible. There's no gray. There's no gray. It's very black and white. If you do this, this will be the result. If you don't do this, this will be the result. You can't kibitz with God. You can't negotiate with God. You can't make a deal with God. It is, in its truest sense, his way or what? The highway. And that highway is broad and leads to destruction. So, I figure that we are going to have to do about four books a class, or four chapters a class. And that's going to be hard because there's a lot tied up in those first four books, in those first eight books, in those first 19 books, that history. But if we look at the history and we compare it to what's in the Bible, to the Bible version, the Exodus opens up to us in a way maybe that it's never opened up to you if you've not sat with the Bible and a map and looked at how all of this unfolded. But there are other lessons that are embedded in there that we are not going to miss. So many things, many things in the book of Exodus might not be given the type of treatment that you think they should be given, but that's because I'm up here and when you teach the book of Exodus, you can teach it the way you want to. Okay? So I'm going to hit the high. I'm going to have to. I'm going to have. I'm going to. I'm finding 13 high points that will be lessons from the book of Exodus. And many, if not all, those lessons will have corollaries in the book of Hebrews that we can use on our Christian walk as opposed to uh, looking just strictly at the children of Israel. Okay? So, um, did everybody get a handout? I won't guarantee you there will be a handout every time, but there will be probably uh, PowerPoints. I, I'm, a big, I'm a big PowerPoint guy. So we will talk about a lot of things that will have a PowerPoint attached to them. So um, just got a couple minutes, so you can go ahead, and, go ahead and go. This will probably be the only class where we run short. We will always have more to say than there is time to say it. <laughs>